Well, good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, I just want to say thank you, church, for the way that um, if this is your first service with us, we have just recently gone to two services and just the, the kindness and graciousness between um, the people going to the first and second. I just, I just want to say thank you. And also, I just want to remind you that that time between services, that 30 minutes is, is for fellowship. And if there's a, a member of the body that you know goes to the first service, I would just really encourage you to, to spend that time engaging with those people because, you know, the goal is that during this time of being in two services, we don't want to lose fellowship. So just want to encourage you in that. And I just want to thank you for how flexible you've been, or um, when I was in youth ministry, we had to be more inflexible. We called it fluid. Flexible things, they'll break eventually. We just had to be fluid and, and, and roll with it. And I just, I thank you guys for being so willing. But let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time, and we'll, we'll dive right into the text. God, you are so gracious to us. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our eyes by your spirit to your truth. God, that you, would, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God, and if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. And as we hear the warnings to the church in Galatia, maybe there's some of us that we're holding the things we ought not. God, by your spirit, you would allow us to let them go. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if this is your first time with us, what we do is we, we walk through books of the Bible. We just pick up where we uh, stopped the week before. And we're in Galatians 5, chapter 5, 7 through 11. That's where we'll be today. And we're continuing our series, Captivated, because we know what, what captivates our hearts that's what we're going to live for, and our prayer and our desire is that we would be captivated by the love of Jesus, and that we would, that we would live for him. So, if you're a note taker, here's our main point for the morning that we believe comes from the text. The offense of the cross is, we're, is we are saved not by human hands or works, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, salvation only comes from Jesus. So, but what do we do with all this? What, what am I sp supposed to do outside of acknowledging this truth? Well, the text shows us that we are to run our race well, not being hindered by false doctrine. So we are to stand against false doctrine. So let's, let's read our passage right now, starting in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I'm I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I be still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So, Let's look at verses 6 through 9 first. We're going to see the warning for us as we run. So last week in, in, in verse 6, 
we see that the only work that matters in the kingdom is, is, is our faith being worked out in love. And in the, our passage this morning, Paul, he's encouraging us to run this race set before us well. So the Galatian, star, the, the, the Galatian church, they started off well. Um, Paul talks about this in chapter 4. He, he, he really encourages them, says, you, you, you ran well. You, th- these are the things that you did. And then we can look over to where we find them in the book of Acts, and man, they're getting after it. They're doing good things. When, when Paul gets beaten left for dead, they, they surround him, and they build him up, and they're sending him out. And like They're doing good things. They were running well. So look at verse 7. It says, you were running well. This means that they're not running well anymore. The, the church was running well, but there, something has hindered them. Church, I believe with all sincerity, we here at Oak Grove are running well right now. We're seeing things that only the Lord can do. We're seeing people come to Christ. That's only a work of the Spirit. We're seeing people break free from addiction. We're seeing people confess sin. We're seeing people submit to biblical baptism. We're, 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 we're seeing people find freedom. God has brought healing to some people's physical elements, and he's brought healing to other people's spiritual issues that they've got going on. We, we see people confessing their bitterness. We see people going to someone who's wronged them and offering forgiveness. We see, like, normally when somebody comes to us and says, hey, you're wrong and I, I forgive you for it, what do we do? Like, we get mad about it, but not right now. I see people going, hey, I did wrong you and I'm sorry. Like, this, this is the work of the Spirit being evident in this body. And I'm telling you, I've never been a part of anything like this right now. And we've been praying for revival. And maybe this is what revival looks like. I was talking to Barry Camp this week. He was the interim here but before I got here. And I was telling him about the extraordinary things that we're seeing God do. And I love what he said. He said, We've accepted abnormal Christianity for so long as being normal that when we see a normal Christian, it seems abnormal. Jordan and I, on the way home every week, we're just talking like, we can't believe we get to be here. We, we get to be a part of you because we are seeing God work through you. And we, we just can't believe we get to do it. But don't get me wrong, God is doing all the things here. And it's the New Testament norm. And I've been a, lot, a part of a lot of churches. And what's sad is that this feels abnormal. So here's the warning. Church. This church was running well. You were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Remember, Paul's talking to Roman citizens in in the southern part of Galatia. And Paul uses one of his favorite analogies throughout 
all of his letters, and that's of a race. Like Americans are generally enamored with sports. Like we love our sports. I love sports. Um, and specifically, we like football. Like some guys over here, they like baseball. Some like that, but we all like football. And that's kind of that's kind of what Paul's doing here. The Roman and Greek culture, they're enamored with the Greek games. They love the Greek games. And he's he uses this picture of of the race most often when talking about the games in, in his books. And the images of this Olympic style race. And Paul says, Who is hindering you from obeying the truth? Who's hindering you from running your race well? So imagine this. We're watching the Olympics. The, the American is not the, 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 the best in that race. He's got a chance to win, but he's the underdog. So they all take their place in a 100 meter. They take their place. They put their hands down. Boom, they shoot the gun. They take off. Everybody's neck and neck for the first 100 yards. Or for not the first, the first 10, 20, 30, 40. And at that 40, he starts pulling off just a little bit. He just starts edging himself out. But somebody steps in his lane, messes his feet up. He was hindered. That's the language. He was hindered. Now, he's got the, the choice to lay on the track and not finish or to finish well, even though he was hindered. Paul is asking, who has hindered you? You've started this race well. I, I don't think Paul's wanting his name. Remember I told you this when we first started reading this book. These New Testament letters, they were sent to be read all at once to the body of believers. And um, we, we read in our minds, like in, a, in quiet, like we, we, we can read in our head, but... Um, there's a funny story about Augustine. He's just an early church father. And he goes and visits Ambrose. That's a guy that was a little bit older than him, a couple, couple hundred years into the church. And they're just sitting, him and another guy, they're just sitting here watching Ambrose read in his head. And they are just dumbfounded because that's not how they did it. The, the culture was that you would read out loud, okay? Even if you're reading by yourself, you're reading out loud. But these letters, they would have been sent to a church and they would have read it out loud. And could you, could you imagine how awkward this got? So all these people, the ones who have hindered them are in the room and Paul is just going to town on them and everybody in the room like... Like, it's awkward. He says, who's hindered you? I bet every head in the, the, the room shifts towards him. Paul didn't need to know who it was specifically because he's already identified the specific issue that was hindering them, and that was false teaching and false doctrine. And he's called these people by the name of the Judaizers in this book or the circumcision party. They're the ones teaching what we've called throughout our series a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus keeping the law, or Jesus plus their traditions, or Jesus plus whatever act to make you really saved. Let's put air quotes around that. Or really righteous. That's, that, that's, who, that's who these people are. What it looks like in our day is people taking the things of God and twisting them to make us trust in a religious act, just like what they were, 
plus Jesus for salvation. Often they do this by taking biblical acts of worship and making them more important than the object of worship. And so, okay, I need Jesus. All right, that gets me to the starting line of salvation, but I need baptism to really be saved. Or I need Jesus to kind of get me there, but then I need to, to give. I need, I need the Lord's Supper. And it's all these things to make up what was lacking in Jesus. That's what that looks like nowadays. It's putting the objects of worship or the, the, the things we do in worship over our object of worship, which is Jesus Christ. And in him alone is salvation found. So at this point in the book, we know, like I said, what was hindering the church of Galatia. But what I'm worried about is what will or what could hinder us, Oak Grove Church. Because, like I said, I believe we're running well the race set before us, and I want to finish well, don't you? So let's look back at verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The one who called the Galatians is God. The, the, the people hindering them are those who are, who are teaching things not from God and not from the truth of God. And we, we know ultimately these truths, where do they come from? These fake truths, these wrong truths, these twisted truths. The father of lies, they come from Satan. This persuasion is from the accuser. The first time we meet Satan in the Bible, what does he do? He distorts the commands of God to Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam and Eve take that distorted truth and sin. Remember Ephesians 6.12, you'll see it on the screen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual for forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Paul called us last week. Remember, this is one fluid letter. We're just taking it in chunks. But the last thing he said was to stand firm. And the standing firm, this, this, this passage out of Ephesians, all of these things are, it's the language of war. But we don't fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with the word of God. Barry, in our conversation this week, he said this. I mean, he was just dropping nuggets of truth on me. I, finally, I was like, hey, dude, I got to go get a pen. Just wait a second. <laughs> uh, he said this. Satan will abuse the truth so that we misuse the truth. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? Satan misuses the truth and Adam and Eve misuse. Mis misuse and abuse the truth. We see in the Pharisees, they, they misuse and abuse the law. And that's what Jesus is standing up against. And we see Paul in, in, in this Galatian church, there's a group who are misusing and abusing the truth and law of God. And what does he do? He stands up and he, he, can, he confronts them. They're teaching a Jesus plus to get real salvation and in a salvation that's not free, if, if, if somebody's preaching a, a gospel that's not by faith alone in Christ alone, what they're offering is no salvation at all. That's why he had to stand up. That's why the call is to war. Many New Testament letters 
are in responses to the abuse of the truth, whether it's legalism, like in this instance that we're reading, or um, in, in 1 John or the letters to the Corinthians, he's fighting, um, the, uh, John and, and Peter, uh, Paul in these two places, they're fighting a different t- kind of false doctrine. This is where they're making them, Paul calls them kind of tongue-in-cheek, making fun of them, super apostles. They have a mysterious knowledge that Paul himself doesn't have. They, they, they have the ability to go beyond the text and find the real truth. They're claiming powers, spiritual powers, that the text does not give them. In Thessalonians, Paul's responding to people who, know, who, who are claiming to know what happens in the afterlife, that people are, are not raised from the dead. Church, there are a million things that could hinder us. It's not just legalism. But how does Paul, Peter, John, and our Lord Jesus combat these things in their, in their letters and in their teachings? With Scripture and with prayer. Jesus confronts the, the, the Pharisees and he's quoting Scripture from the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. When, when, when Jesus confronts Satan in the wilderness, he quotes Scripture. Paul, here in our passage, he's been making the case that salvation is by faith alone. Not like it's some New Testament idea. What's he doing? He's quoting Old Testament Scripture to make his case. Scripture is how we fight. We are in a spiritual war church. And we are running our race well. I don't know what Satan will throw at us to hinder us. I don't know what the potential thing is that will cause disunity. But the one thing I do know is it will be a matter of truth. Every time it's a matter of truth. It's always a doctrinal disturbance. And here's a warning Don't be the one who causes the doctrinal disturbance in the church. Verse 9 says this. Paul Paul, Paul has this to say about doctrinal disturbances. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's kind of, for our vernacular, one rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel. So imagine if I had a cup up here. I had my cup of water in the first service, but lost it. But uh, so we got the imaginary cup. But imagine I had a cup of water right here and I were to take and pour just a little bit of poison in it. Would I have a volunteer to come drink? Because it could kill you. What, What if it didn't kill you? What if it just made you a little bit sick? No matter what, the poison will hinder us from running our race well. So here's Paul's warning for Oak Grove Church. If we're unwilling to recognize, confront, and reject false teaching when it pops up in our church, the false doctrine will spread like gangrene. 
It will spread. It will permeate the body. False doctrine doesn't just corrupt our gospel message, but it corrupts our unity. And Jesus tells us, they, talking about the world out there, they will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. Our testimony of unity accompanies our gospel message. Imagine if, if, China, if, if, if Oak Grove was known for being a backbiting church and to be constantly being in division. And then you go and you share the gospel with somebody in China Spring and that's what we're known for. How, do you, how far do you think that message will go? The unity of the body is one of the greatest apologetics. That word means proofs that Jesus Christ is alive and working here. It's one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is alive and working through you in the power of his spirit. Because unity is not something we can manufacture on our own. So what do we do with all this, church? We stand firm. We stand firm on the truth like he called us to last week because we live in a world where truth is a matter of perspective. Pilate, he, he even asked Jesus, what is truth? The question of what truth is is not a new question. It is a question as old as time. And we live in a world where people think gender is fluid and it's considered hate speech to call boys boys and girls girls. We are at a place where people on TV and politicians are framing the hate crime that happened against Christians in Nashville as some sort of sick, twisted justice because that person is of an oppressed people. They're, they're victimizing the one who's committed the atrocity and we've all watched TV this week. You've, you've seen it. You've been disgusted by it as well. And it's all because the real victims are Christians. We are in a place in history that sociologists call a post-truth culture. So that means meaning and truth does not derive from facts. And hey, we've been in this for a long time, so... You, this might be something you have to exegete in yourself. Meaning and truth does not come from facts. Rather, it's derived from how you feel about an argument. Truths are how we feel about a situation. Church, we do not operate like the culture the emotional appeal of an argument does not validate that argument. What matters is, does it derive from Scripture? My experience, church, is that false teaching in the body normally comes from an emotional appeal with the text attached to it. Cherry-picked. And it's not from the word of God. Most bad doctrine I encounter starts with a person saying something like this. Well, for me, followed by in my heart or my heart tells me, look, we don't live in a Disney movie. If, if, if we were to operate like the Disney princesses, we would be in a bind. 
Following your heart's not going to get you there. Let me tell you what the Bible tells you about your heart. And you, it's in the Bible and you can trust this. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If the thing that draws you is the emotional appeal of an argument rather than the word of God, just know that you are probably walking in sin. If this is what you're doing, you might want to recalibrate your decision-making mechanism and instead submit rather than to your own heart to the will and the word of God. Following the Holy Spirit. So this is about to get touchy, but we're just going to go there. We all have homosexual friends and family members that we love. But because we love them, does that change the truthfulness of the scripture about the way they're living? No. But every week, I see famous churches, one after another, pastor come up on the stage and change their stance on this, stepping away from scripture, making an emotional appeal. We must speak truth in love to a lost and dying world. But it is unloving to be untruthful. But for heaven's sake, be kind. We are to speak truth in love. So how did we get here as a church culture? Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The Bible in America has been under attack for decades, since the early 1900s. The, the proper name for it is German theological liberalism, but you won't hear that thrown around as much unless you read like Vody Bachum or somebody like that, but you won't hear those na- that, that thrown a, uh, around a lot. But what you will hear are things like higher criticism and um, textual criticism. And what, what they're doing is it's, it's an attack against the Bible because when the Bible's attacked, truth is attacked. It's an attack against truth. This group who holds to these things some, and so here, here we go. I'm painting with a broad brush. So when you paint with a broad brush, you're not hitting everybody and you're going to put people in a, in a camp that they may not agree with, but we're painting with a broad brush. But those who hold to this textual higher criticism, some of these people believe that the Bible is not inspired, but most, if not all, will affirm that the Bible has been edited. Therefore, it cannot totally be trusted. And just in a little aside note, but this view that the Bible's been edited has been proven false by empirical evidence. Go study the Dead Sea Scrolls and see what comes up. But let's go back to these guys. That's not what we're talking about. If the Bible can't be trusted, the logical conclusion is that the parts that make us uncomfortable or the parts that we we don't like, we don't have to follow those parts. There was a time that these views were the commonly held views in the Southern Baptist Convention of which we're a part of. 
among theological conservatives at that time, and this is in the mid-1900s, among theological conservatives, evangelical conservatives, so that's a real narrow branch of Christianity, we were considered theologically liberal. A lot of people don't know that anymore, but that's the case because now we're considered the most uh, conservative branch or one of the most conservative branches. And the reason I bring this all up because it was brought to my attention last year, you guys were almost ready to pull out of the convention for liberalism, which the, the, the Southern Baptists, that's not the case. Now, there are groups in it that I think we would find that to be true, but as a convention, we're not. But so these, these people, they ended up rising to, to leadership um, in our theological institutions, in our conventions, and in our pulpits. And they would not affirm the truthfulness and the infallibility and the inspiration of the Bible. And as a convention, we had a great doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 63, but these people, they used some loose language in it to create loopholes. And these doctrinal statements that we have, remember, they're not Scripture. But these doctrinal statements are derived from Scripture, and they are the things that we're affirming together to do ministry together. So why does all this matter? I've got a four-year-old, about to be five. She lets us know all the time. I don't want anybody teaching her the Bible who doesn't believe the Bible's true. I know it took me a long way to get here. I just want to walk you into how we got here. I don't want anybody teaching my daughter that doesn't believe the Bible to be true anything about the Bible. You don't want anybody in this pulpit or in your Sunday school class or leading your community group who does not believe the Bible to be true to teach you and your family anything, right, about the Bible. Well, we have to have some sort of standard that we judge by to allow these people to do this. And when false things pop up, some sort of standard to hold them by, and that's our doctrinal statements. So the Baptist Faith and Message was written in 63, and it was a great document with great statements of faith, but it needed to be updated because institutional leaders took these statements and they twisted them. And if you're not a Southern Baptist and you're just showing up for your first time, I'm sorry, but this, the church family needs to know this. So they took and they, they twisted these things. And, and they created the loophole so that they didn't have to lie and they could, they could serve in these different places. And also, uh, some of the stuff, it was updated because we closed the loopholes. So we changed that, those, that language. Also, it didn't talk about some of the sexuality issues that we're dealing with today. It didn't talk about some of the marriage issues that we're dealing with today and, and family. So that's, that's, that's what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the updated one, talks about. But the Baptist Faith and, and Message 63 said that the Bible has truth without any mixture of error in it. So they, the authors assumed the Bible to be the truth, but it didn't say it. It said it has truth. So the liberals took the Bible and they said the Bible has truth, but it may also have some error. 
Um, so the liberal theologians and preachers, they could sign the 63 because it didn't say the Bible is the truth. And that's important. Another issue was how the liberals were interpreting, and I'm saying theological liberals, not social liberals. Another issue was how they were interpreting the statement in the 63 that says the criterion by which we interpret the Bible is to be interpreted through Christ, which that's a really neat statement, kind of convoluted, hard to understand. Never heard, seen the word criterion anywhere else than the 63. But I'm not as widely read as these men who wrote it probably. Um, but the statement was manipulated to be, if Jesus, since Jesus was the criterion by which we were interpreting the Bible, if Jesus himself did not speak to an issue, then it was up to us whether or not we wanted to accept it. So it was an argument made out of silence. If Jesus didn't speak to it, we could decide what we wanted to believe. It did not matter if Paul made a clear statement. Again, since we've thrown sexual, uh, homosexuality out there, we'll just keep talking about it this morning. But um, Paul in the Old Testament, they clear, John, they clearly speak to homosexuality as being a sin. Jesus didn't specifically say anything about it. They, they were treating it as if Jesus was not inspired by the same one who inspired the other authors of Scripture, which is the Holy Spirit. Same author, God, and Jesus is God. Not a different author. Nobody's in contradiction to one another. And this is just kind of by way of, uh, I'm on a tangent now, so I'll just keep writing it out. I love the red letters in our Bible. Bless, bless them, and well, it's great. Because, you know, everybody wants to make this big grandstand on the red letters say it. Well, it's all said by God. A matter of fact, a guy who, debatable on whether or not he was a believer, as a matter of fact, he wrote papers about not being a believer that were thrown away by his biographers, um, said that, or, I'm talking about Abraham Lincoln, he put the red letters in. Like, that's, that's a new thing. And those red letters are no more authoritative than anything else Jesus said. So, I'm not trying to create a situation of those who hold to the 63 versus those who, who hold to the 2000. I'm wanting you to see that we're talking about the truthfulness of Scripture. And we want the people who lead us and who lead our children and who lead the institutions we give money to for the furtherance of the gospel to, to, to teach as if they believe the Bible's true because they do. We want these people to be able to do this. So to be able to uh, teach in any of our six Southern Baptist seminaries, you have to affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. To, to lead in any of our conventions, you have to affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I have students, this is why this is important. I have students, I was a youth pastor for a long time. I've got students who always come back from, from these institutions that used to be Southern Baptist that many of you probably still give to because they have Baptist in the name. And I'm not talking about one, I'm talking about many. And they tell me how they were taught the Old Testament as if it was mythology. These people cannot affirm the Baptist faith in Message 2000. Like, this is why this matters. Church, 
we need to hold to a strong statement on Scripture because from Scripture comes all Christian faith and practices. Amen? Oak Grove, you are running well. What has hindered you? I don't know what it will be, but whatever it is, potentially it's an issue of doctrine and we need to have strong convictions about the Holy Spirit or about the Holy Spirit, about the scriptures guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's how we're going to overcome these things. So this is the reason I've been pushing Oak Grove to read through the Baptist faith in message 2000. We hold to the 63. It's a great statement of faith. But church, look around the room. How many people do you still recognize from four months ago? We are growing and we need to have a standard by which we allow people to teach. Because I don't know about for you, but for my daughter, I, I, I want to know that these people can affirm the truthfulness of the Bible. And so let's look at verse 10, and we, we see a warning for what we say, and I'll move through this quickly. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul says, all right, you've seen the error of your ways. I've showed you with scripture. You're going to walk away from this false Jesus plus doctrine. And now, now you're going to walk right. You're, 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 going to, you're going to teach again that it's by Jesus alone who saves. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But look after the comma in verse 10. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Paul has already in chapter 1 called out this person that they would be a curse, that they would be, the Greek word is anathema. He's calling the curse of God on this one, on these people who are causing this disturbance. And I'm assuming that this penalty is punishment in hell but maybe they're believers, so maybe it's some sort of different punishment because we see teachers are judged more strictly. Let's look at, let's look at the warning in James 3.1. It's a warning for anyone who's going to teach, anyone who's going to say something authoritative about the Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know we who, who, who teach will be judged with a greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble... Like, He's like, look, we're, we're, we're all sinners. We're all going to say things wrong. We're all going to be like, but there's going to be a stricter judgment on those of us who teach. The, the, Bible, the Bible is warning you, and this is, I'm saying you, I'm saying everybody who says anything authoritative about the Bible. So if you say the Bible says this, now you're putting yourself in this role of a teacher to someone else. And we have to be sure what we're saying is grounded in scripture. And if you're unconfident, let me help you out. I say this all the time. Hey, I'm not sure. Let me go look. Because we are responsible for the words that come out of our mouth about the truth. And I'm, I always want to encourage people to share their faith and to share what they know about the Bible. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But I also want to warn you, if you don't know, just say you don't know. Don't make something up. <laughs> or let, like, hey, I'm just thinking out loud about this. Let them know that this isn't. <laughs> but just own it. We, we're not the, the sole arbiters of all truth. 
and to put ourselves out authoritatively on something, we're warned about that. So let's look at, let's look at verse 11, verses 11 through 12. This is the warning that, that preaching the cross is an offense. He says this, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What Paul's doing right here is he's showing evidence that when we preach the gospel, it's going to be an offense. Paul, in this letter, just in this letter alone, let's not talk about anything else in the book of Acts, which a lot of things were going on, right? In this letter, he tells us he's been maligned, he's been lied about, and his, his character has been attacked, and, and they've taken the words that have came out of his mouth and twisted them and made them into lies. That's evidence that he's preaching the gospel. Because when you preach the gospel, you're going to be persecuted. Paul's over here like, look, why am I being persecuted? Don't you see that the gospel that I'm preaching is different than the gospel that they're preaching? And if, if, it, if it was the same thing, they would have no reason to persecute me. So how have the Judaizers, how has the circumcision party, how has these people taken the offense out of the cross. The offense of the cross is removed when you replace faith with human effort. Let me say that again. The offense of the, of the, the cross is removed when you replace the work of Jesus with human effort. It's, it's, it's this Jesus plus gospel that says Jesus plus my human effort will be the thing that really makes me saved. That's, that'll be the thing that really makes me righteous. It says, I can save myself. Jesus plus circumcision to really be saved, or Jesus plus baptism to really be saved, or Jesus plus giving to really be saved, or Jesus plus good works to really be saved. All these things, when they are added to the gospel for salvation, they're all good things. But when they're added to the gospel for salvation, they've removed the offense from the gospel. Because the cross, this is what it's teaching. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus plus something equals nothing. Why is the cross an offense? Because the, the cross of salvation is something that's totally brought out of the will of God. The cross preaches that we're all born in our sins. We're all born into sin. Romans 5, it, it preaches uh, Ephesians 3, that, or Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. The cross teaches us, Romans 5, that we are enemies of God. The cross is an offense because it reveals that we are all wicked, evil people who have broken the law and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, Romans 3. Romans 3. That's what the cross preaches. The cross is an offense because it shows that man did not initiate his righteousness. Man did not initiate his salvation. And you're like, how in the world does the cross preach that? Look at the one hanging on the cross. We were so hopelessly lost that we needed divinity to intervene on our behalf. 
We needed God to become man. Jesus, he stepped out of heaven, became man, put on a robe of human flesh. He lived like us for 30 years. He was perfect. He kept the law. He did miracles. He proved himself to be God. And the cross shows the perfect, sinless God of the universe being hung on a tree to redeem a people who he created. Sounds a lot like Galatians 3, doesn't it? To pay for sins that you and I committed. On the cross, Jesus took our curse. He took our sin and he gave us, he imputed us with his righteousness. All who would believe by faith. And this is why the cross is offensive because the only way that you can get this righteousness is by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's just say that together. How, how is the only way we can be saved? By faith alone, in Christ alone. This is offensive because to come to Christ, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're, you probably feel the offense right now. But to come to Christ, you have to acknowledge your part that your sin was why he hung on the tree, was why he hung on the cross. That, you're sin, that you have sinned against a holy and just God. And you've done nothing to go towards him, but he did everything to come to you. And if you would confess your sin and you would believe in your heart that Jesus Christ has, has raised from the dead, the Bible tells us that you would be saved. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to be, we're about to pray and I'm going to be standing over here. I would love to have this conversation with you. But for everybody else, we have a different call. The call is to take a stand. To take a stand on the truthfulness of Scripture because aren't we a people who want to run our, our race well? And what if you find that you're the one who is maybe teaching something that's not in line with this? Maybe you would be brave enough to, to open your heart to the Lord and say, if someone comes to me, I'm willing, I'm willing to take that if they can show it to me in the scriptures. Let's pray.